0: You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. All right, let's go to uh, let's go to Mark chapter ten, please, uh, for just a little bit. <clears throat> I realize that some of the things that I I say in here are are not necessarily very reflective of this body of believers, but uh, when I look across the the wider spectrum of what's happening in the Christian world, one of the most unfortunate things that's happening is that we are still very stuck on a teaching... uh, it, and it's, it kind of penetrates mainstream Christianity. The teaching is that the, the, the Christian life is basically boils down to to doing those things that we know that are good and avoiding those things that we know are evil. I was trained that way. I was taught that way. It kind of penetrates our teaching of our children, which is absolutely necessary. We need to teach them. Those things that are right, we need to teach them how to avoid those things that are wrong. Now, again, nothing wrong with, with that. Uh, it's, it's exactly what we should do with children. That's the way the Bible describes it. In Galatians chapter 4, it says something about leaving those, those things, ele- the, the basic elements, those things that are elementary. We would expect in elementary school over here that we would teach children those things that we expect them to do that are right and teach them the rules about those things that are wrong. But according to Paul, as, as he writes there, then we are we are supposed to move on beyond that. But I want to look at a particular scripture here in just a minute in Mark chapter 10 that talks about this. And it's, I'm just going to take a couple of verses. Uh, the idea today of teaching that do good and avoid evil seems like a perfect idea. It seemed like a very intuitive thing to do. Why wouldn't we want to teach each other, even as adults, to create this list of these are the things that we should do. Even, let's just say, let's just use the Bible as the as the reference and figure out what the Bible says that we're supposed to do that's good and, and figure out those things that the Bible says that we're supposed to do that are evil. Uh, Apparently, it's pretty easy to teach because the, the Christian world and most of the churches uh, have convinced us, convinced ourselves that this is the purpose of the church, to teach, the, to teach those basic elements. Uh, the unfortunate part is that when we convince ourselves what's good, then we also feel the, the necessity and the urgency to go peddle our version of good to the rest of the world, and, we, and there have been millions and billions and billions of dollars spent in that endeavor. We go in the name of that which we believe, that which we profess to be good, and we go across countries and oceans and all over the world saying, let us come tell you our version of good. Well, unfortunately, in many of the countries around the world, our version of, our version of good won't won't sell can't sell it you can't tell them about prosperity you can't tell them about success you can't tell them about about the things that we would say this is what being good gets you so we there's this question that gets asked in this verse mark chapter 10 let's begin reading in verse 17 and i'm only going to use two verses Verse 17, and when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. Now, again, this leads into the story of, of this rich young ruler and the one who came and wanted to follow Jesus. And, but I'm going to stop, just held in those two verses for, just for, for, the, for tonight. Why callest thou me good? I want us to just stop and ponder for a second how strange that had to sound to the people who were around him. If the disciples were around, if there was a small crowd around when this guy came and said, you know, good master, uh, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? And anybody would expect the answer to come immediately. Well, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. That Jesus had a moment here. I guess we would call it a teaching moment. He needed to tell them something. He needs to tell us something because the message in this answer is extremely profound because most of us today still believe that it's our obligation as Christians to be good. We still have a standard. We still have a set of expectations and that that we could probably, if we spent a few minutes, define what we collectively would say would be good. And most of us, having been so saturated in that teaching, would still hope and expect that I would be considered as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, to be good. A good husband, a good father, a good grandfather, a good pastor. And Here's Jesus who, if you looked at any resume in the world to try to discover good, you would find it because by this time in Mark chapter 10, Jesus had healed, he had taught, he had loved, he had shown and demonstrated forgiveness, he had encouraged, he had performed miracles, he had fed the multitudes And now this young man says, good master. And Jesus' response with all of those credentials said, why do you call me good? I think it would be interesting if we completely removed that identity or that adjective away from describing ourselves because would there be any flattery at all? Any recognition in the fact that somebody would say you're a good pastor? No, there wouldn't. You're a good husband? No, there wouldn't. Because if if you're not going to be able to call Jesus good after his list of credentials, it raises a significant question. Why do you call me good? And we get stuck in in that question. The question seems very uh appropriate uh, that the the statement that the, the young man made seems very appropriate if he knew the reason I want to come follow you the reason I'm going to come ask you this question about eternal life is because I have seen you I've heard you I've heard you teach I've heard you preach I've seen the miracles that you've done it doesn't even seem ridiculous at all that this young man this man would come and say good master that's the part that makes sense. The part that doesn't make sense is Jesus' response. how and why he would so dissect himself from goodness, why he would absolutely say, and this is interesting to me, and I think it would be to any of us who get in this debate. Stacy answered this for me several months ago, and I've used her diagram ever since about about God in in the relationship of what the Trinity looks like. For Jesus, who was never less than God but never more than man, clearly distinguished himself and separated himself in this moment from God. That That was his answer. Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one God. God is good. So we're recognizing that Jesus is distinguishing, distinguishing himself here as fully human. So that goodness originated in God the Father. That's right. The goodness had to originate somewhere else. And it's. Un, it, it, I, I wish I could remember who I was talking to, and I think it was Saturday up here. Uh, I can remember exactly what was said, but I can't remember who said it. So, if it was one of y'all, tell me. You can share it. Uh, the person I was talking to said that they they were they were quoting someone else who said that the feedback that they got back as a pastor or as an evangelist or a teacher, the, the number one area of of criticism and hate mail was when this pastor or teacher would teach on the fact that we were in any way equal to Jesus. People find that, would find that very offensive, that I would in any way compare myself or put myself on an equal footing to Jesus. I don't know why that would be upsetting to anybody because Jesus worked so diligently to put himself on our footing. To never function more than in his humanity, though he was never less than God, but to function here completely within his humanity so that he could put himself squarely on our level. Philippians declares that. And so, but he said, number one place of hate mail was in in any kind of teaching. It's like, how do you deal with joint heirs then? How do you deal with some of that teaching that, that puts a joint heirs with Christ? How do you deal with some of that teaching if you see that is so wrong? Well, Jesus himself is doing it here. He's separating himself. You don't call me good. You call God good. That's profound in, its, in the very nature of that teaching that Jesus is separating himself for our sake to teach us so that we can understand in our humanity that there is absolutely no expectation for us to be good. That can make people nervous. It kind of cuts across the grain when, when we have been so indoctrinated that, they, that we would be, because we're Christian, that, we, that our objective, that our goal would largely be that we would be good and we would be recognized as good. So his answer had to be a little startling. Uh, We lose, because this has become such a familiar passage to us, we don't have much of a fascination with it anymore. Uh, But his answer was so absolutely profound. So profound. I spoke, uh, let's see, Trying to think where the actual passage was. In, in Exodus 32, when Moses came down off the mountain, and because the question had come up about, about grinding that, the golden calf into, into ash and them drinking it, that's absolutely true. It's in, but it's in chapter 33 and 34, right after that, where Moses asked this question. I think it's in chapter 33, and I think it begins with verse 12 where Moses says to God, yes, you've sent me. Yes, you have promised your grace would be with me. Yes, you have assured me of these things. But who's going to go with me? So he's basically asking for the resources. Who are the resources going to be? Who's the leadership that you're going to send with me? How many trained men? How many trained women? How many doctors? How many nurses? We got a a big job in front of us. We're going to take lots of people across this. Who are you going to send with me? And the answer was simple. The one answer that we would all hope to hear. The answer from God was my presence will be with you. Now again, by this time they have seen the Red Sea part. They have seen unbelievable things by this time. And here's, here's Moses saying, who, who are you going to send? Who's going to proceed with me? And God says, My presence will, so you can rest. Well, we hear in the Old Testament this version of what Jesus, of the same answer that Jesus is giving, because Jesus is telling them. I don't have a requirement nor an expectation from heaven that I will be good. Why would you call me that? Again, startling that Jesus would respond so specifically, almost aggressively, not angrily, but aggressively, with great fervor, why callest thou me good? There is none good but God. So Jesus is trying to tell us in that simple answer, something that we so profoundly need to hear. I'm going to talk about this on, on the first part about why we have to avoid letting ourselves be considered good. What's the danger? What would it have meant for Jesus to have said, thank you very much. I, you know, yeah, I try. I try. I just do the little bit that I can, you know, I've, because the danger for Jesus and him accepting that praise and that recognition saying, thank you for recognizing that I'm doing some pretty good stuff here, you know, that, that I'm good. Thank you for recognizing that. The danger for him and his humanity would be the same dangers for you and I. And he's, and, he, and again, he's teaching us this very, very well. Being good, this, this is. sometimes these statements are hard to comprehend, not comprehend, they're hard to get our minds around because this doesn't seem appropriate that you ought to be able to say about Jesus. But being good carried for him the same risk it carries for us if we believe for a moment that God has called us to be good. The same risk for him as it would be for us. So what are the risks? I have three of them here that I'm going to talk to you about. The first risk is if we see ourselves as good, it creates the real potential to judge others and compare our goodness with those around us. Let me read that again. The first risk, if we see ourselves as good, There's the real potential to judge others and compare others to the goodness that we think we have. Now, this is a big one. And you all have heard me talk about this before. And so to you it's probably a repeat. But most mission work done when you leave out obedience, when you leave out the work of the Holy Spirit, is based on a judgment that I have something that you need. And you need my version of it. You need my brand of it. Because we go in the name not only of God in these things, we go in in the, in the name of the version of good that we believe in. For example, if I was going to go on a mission trip and I'm, and I'm following a very strong denominational line, if I see somebody that's saved, in some denominations they're going to say, our version of good says you're not really saved until you're baptized. And that's the version of good we would take. Another version of good, we'd go, we'd go to the next village, another group would go to the next village or the next town and say, if you're going to be saved, then you, then you put your belief and trust in Jesus Christ. Baptism is optional. That's our version of good. That's another version of good. Others would say, well, we, we, we're going to do this, but we need to sprinkle you. Others would say, we need to immerse you because all we've done in this one category of baptism, we've now defined about four or five different versions of good. It's our version. And we go peddling, selling, speaking, telling our version of good. That's the reason it needs to come from the Father. Mm hmm. Because we're going to. Our first assumption is, if I see myself as good, then I'm going to really have something I can give you. And if you don't have what I have, I can compare you to, what I, to how well you're doing. That If I see myself as good, it opens the door initially for that first judgment to be made of others. Here's the second risk. The second risk, risk is if we see ourselves as good, The risk is that by our nature, we will compare and find ourselves less than someone else. I may see myself as good. But if I hang around Matthew very long, my version of good doesn't compare to his version of better. Good creates a rating scale. So I can be better than some, but I will absolutely... Be assured that I'm not as good as others. That somebody has something I don't have. have, They're in tune with something I'm not in tune with. They hear what I don't hear. And what it creates, the downside of this risk, judgment on one side, the first one I'm talking about, the other, which is equally damaging and equally destructive that I speak against in my office privately so often, is self-evaluation. This is a, again. These are huge issues within the Christian church because Satan absolutely wants Diana to, to self evaluate Diana because she will conclude that all of the all the correction needs to come by change found within her. Satan loves that because then where do, when you're aiming the weapon to deal with the problem where do you aim it at yourself what a difference again these these are unusual things to teach but you've heard me you, you've heard me say and again this is where pe- people really disagree with me on this topic that when we see behaviors that are that are less than what we desire, the number one answer is bad decisions. You're making bad decisions. Because bad behavior is a result of bad decisions. I'm not even gonna ask you if that's true because I don't want you to shake your head one way or other. I won't completely rule that category out, but bad behavior, unusual behavior, is much more likely to be the the self-evident fruit of a false identity. It's true. It's true. It's not just somebody's making bad decisions, which is creating bad behavior. The more likely reality is that they're carrying a false identity, and that false identity is creating a bad behavior in them. It's not just a decision they're making. It's not just a choice that they're making. Why is that so important? Because if it's a bad decision, where does the weapon aim? And ourselves. If I know that it's a false identity and I know who's speaking that false identity to the person, I get to move the weapon. I get to truly hit the one who's whispering in somebody's ear that's not a thought that's originating in your head to make the decision. There's actually a voice speaking into your ear all the time and, and telling you this is who you are. You're poor, you're weak, you're lazy, you're worthless, you're hopeless. Over and over, this voice begins to speak those things. And why would we then be shocked that when somebody's getting whispered, you're hopeless, you're worthless, you're worthless. See again, you're worthless. Look at this, you're worthless again. Look at what's happening here. They're treating you this way because you're worthless. Why would I be shocked that that fruit, that tree named worthless is producing a questionable fruit? You see, if I don't know this, I will spend my time in self-evaluation trying to consider what have I done wrong? What have I said wrong? Where have I gone wrong? What can I fix? What can I adjust? And all the effort becomes behavior modification because I've evaluated myself and says, oh, now this is what I need. And the weapon gets turned right here on me and I'm trying to reach the trigger so that I can shoot to kill that which is in me. I don't want to be in me. Will ever get it. Who loves self evaluation? I will admit, I'm not going, you know, I will admit that there is an element in the scripture, very God directed, for us to consider ourselves. But we have to be very, very careful even in that consideration because if I'm deeming myself uh, that I'm supposed to be evaluating myself to see whether I'm good or not. I will come up with a conclusion in my self-evaluation that I'm probably not. Even in the evaluations, in the considerations that the Bible instructs us to do, especially around the sacraments, around the the Lord's Supper, you know, to to do this review. The review that that I, I see that he's asking us to do is where do I now stand according to that which God has given me? For the salvation that was paid for, does my life reflect that salvation? Does it reflect the spirit that was given me? And does it reflect the fact that there's going to be a wedding? And am I ready for that wedding day? Yeah, there is a reason for me to look at myself, but my standard in that is not goodness. That standard in that is what it's talking about here, what Shorty's mentioned. My standard is where do I stand in the eyes of God? Because then I will will understand myself not in terms of goodness but in terms of obedience. Am I being obedient? Am I in the will of God? Have I gone astray? Am I in somebody else's yard? Or am I in the the yard that is attached to my father's house? Satan loves self-evaluation because he knows then that all the effort will be what, what happened when Pharaoh was keeping the children of Israel in bondage, he made them believe that they were slaves and it was their fault. He was benevolent. He was feeding them. He was providing shelter for them. He he was the one that was bringing the food. We know that to be true because when they got in the wilderness, they wanted to go back where the food was to this benevolent Pharaoh who was actually feeding them. They saw that as the better state than in the freedom that God was bringing them into. He, Pharaoh had to convince them, how can you keep this many people slave for 400 years unless you convince them that it's, their, it's weakness within themselves that's causing them to be slaves? Not because there's somebody, because he knew if they ever start believing that it's not them, where will they turn the weapon? On him. The one who's really perpetuating the lie, perpetuating the story. So the first risk is that I'll see myself as good and I'll judge others. The second is I'll, I'll see myself as good and compare myself to others and start this destructive self-evaluation and self-analysis that is so prevalent, not only in the Christian world, but all the world. Man, review yourself. The third one, the third risk is this. If, 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 if Shorty and Teresa come to our house for dinner and we're sitting at the end, at the end of the meal and there's potatoes and gravy left and i say shorty you want some more and you're sitting there so full what what are you going to say no i'm i'm full um, thank you but i'm full yeah uh, one other word satisfied according to this scripture i'm what good. I'm, good. <laughs> I'm good i'm good i'm good yeah i'm good you want some more no i'm good You want another one? No, I'm good. Need another drink? No, I'm good. What happens to us when we see ourselves as good, we hit that state, I'm good, what happens in us spiritually? We're We're satisfied and we won't take what's next. If we ever see ourselves as good, in a place now, I'm good. I'm good right now. Everything's good. It seemed like such a common thing to say. I'm, no, I'm. I, you know, do you need, need any more? No, I'm good. The the risk in this. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, it's such a common. It's a common phrase. Uh, when we see ourselves as full, when when we're asked if we want more, or someone offers to make our situation better, no, I'm good. I didn't realize until I had my history that asking and help asking for help and turned that blessing on that person. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a prime thing, it switched it as give that other person a blessing. Sure. hmm yeah, it, and it it needs to happen in all of us because what we're really saying is that which God is sending me, this above and beyond where I currently am, the help I the help I don't even know that I need or the help I need and I won't ask for, do you need something? No, I'm good. It could be that personal. Oh, yeah, it's very, it's, it's very two-sided. I tell people all the time, it's like I hate to take up your time when somebody sits down with me. It's like you've got to be kidding me. You are the the gift God has sent me. Why would I ever not not want to visit with you? Why would I not ever want to visit with you? You are the gift that God's placed in front of me for this hour or for the the time that we're together. Why would I ever imagine you to be less than a gift? Because they see it as one-sided. They see they're coming to get something from me. It's like, no, you've come to bring something to me. And it's it's never different than that. That is the way that it always is. But if I say, no, I'm good. We won't receive the better, the best that God's trying to give us. It's such a common phrase, I'm good. But the risk associated with, and this is what Jesus is telling us, when he said, good master, don't call me good. Why would you call me good? Because strangely, in his humanity, Jesus knew the same thing. If they ever began to see him as good, they would wear him out. They were doing it anyway. He had to transfer to them the reality that the goodness could come to them when he wasn't there. That the the source of the goodness was coming from somewhere else. So that when he wasn't there presently in his physical body, they would know that the goodness was still possible. The goodness was still present. Don't call me good, because if you assign that goodness to me, then you won't understand the source of the goodness for yourself. He's teaching a profound lesson to us now about this danger of seeing ourselves as good good husbands, good wives, good friends. Again, such a common phrase. But I I hope within us we understand. If I'm a good friend to Don, it's because what I could offer Don would be the best that my hands could do, the best that my heart could do, the best that my mind could do. He deserves a friend better than that. Because if the goodness of God is coming through me, so that he understands that if I'm a good friend I'm a godly friend and what's coming to him is beyond my capability it's coming through me to him now he's experiencing a good friend but not done that he speaks says sure a good absolutely Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, this is why I said, starting from the beginning, some of this sounds differently in this church who had been taught about this, this yeah. Holy Spirit flowing through us. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Jesus, in this profound moment, was stopping this, this conversation that he was having with this young man who came and asked for eternal life. It's like, get to the point. You've got an opportunity to lead this young man into the Lord to yourself, to, to, to the kingdom life, and you stop with this answer? If you're going to stop with this answer, you can bet something was profound in the way he wanted, what he needed to say before he answered that question. Because this young man had a misconception about who Jesus was, And we get to read, we read later the result, not only here but in other places, that somebody wanted to come follow him because they saw him as good when, he, when it's like, I'm not good. You've got to understand where the goodness is coming from. Or, or you will follow me for the absolute wrong reason. Much of the Christian world is following God for the wrong reason because they think that his expectation of them is that they should be good. He said, I don't want your goodness. I want you to want my goodness. If he's going to, in that passage, in in Exodus chapter 33, when he says after, who's going to go with me, down in about verse 30, I think, somewhere in there, he's when he asks, God, show me your glory. And God says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll stick you in the cleft of this rock, and I'll let all my goodness pass before you because nobody's ever seen my face. I can, you can see me as, as, as I'm passing by. And I let all of my goodness, and then we get in verse chapter 34 where that actually occurs, and it's going by, and the, and the God begins to declare about the kindness and the tenderheartedness and all those things he's openly declaring about who he is as God, the goodness of God. It's amazing to me because we get to read, as you're talking about, Jamie, we get to read, you know, First Thessalonians five twenty three. that says, Faithful is he who calleth you, who will also do it. If he's going to call me to be good, he said, I, I'm going to be the goodness that you need to give away. Faithful is he who calls you. If he calls me to be good to Don, faithful is, faithful is he who calleth you, who will also do it. He's saying, "I want Don to experience my goodness. I just want it to come through you. I need your hands." Remember, we talked about what he said to what he said to, to Adam. Adam, where are you? Where are you, Adam? You may think you can do this without me, but Adam, I'm here to tell you, I can't do this without you. You're the only person on the earth in whom i've placed my image if you don't bear my image who's going to bear it that message hadn't changed but if his image is the goodness of god then i have to let his goodness be the goodness that i share and jesus was profound in the answer when he says why do you call me good there's none good but god he erased forever the question Where does my goodness originate? Where does my kindness originate? Where does my love originate? Where does my wisdom originate? Where does my strength originate? Because you could have put anything. You could have said strong master, wise master. The answer would have been the same. Why do you call me strong? Why do you call me wise? There's none strong but God. There's none wise but God. The answer would have been exactly the same. He used good because the goodness is the nature of God. It's the big umbrella under which everything else falls. Comments or questions about this? I have one. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it shows up as a decision. But, they don't even realize they're doing it. No, it's just... It's, it's, it's just natural. The world has assigned it this category of a decision. When you... Again, I, I use the illustration that if, if I went out here to these oak trees in the, in, the, in the courtyard and said, I'm sick of these acorns. I need bananas. And I'm down there and I'm, I'm talking to these oak trees and I'm giving them some encouragement and I'm telling them, I, this is the kind of banana I want. Now get busy. What would any ob- observer think of me? This guy's lost his mind trying to get an oak tree to produce a different kind of fruit. When we shift, if we if we make the shift from action, from activity to identity and from doing to being, and we really believe that God is about who He is and telling us who we are, and that Satan's deadly trick is identity, it's not hard to recognize that bad behavior can absolutely be the result of an identity that Satan has whispered. It's consistent. Does it show up, and that's why it gets so much acknowledgement when well, they're just making a bad decision? They're not making a bad decision for, a, for a, a tree that's called worthless. They're making a decision that looks perfectly right from a tree that's called worthless. Because it's the fruit of an identity rather than just a decision that's being made. I, and again, I'm not I'm not excluding that some things are just bad decisions. That's still, that's still, I'm not saying. I think in the bad decisions, you sometimes, and just speaking from experience in an awesome teenager life, that sometimes you have to pick this is a decision and this is just an activity, and to give that person grace because they don't understand the difference. Because even as an adult, Yeah, and again, I, I won't rule out the reality of bad decisions because he gave us a mind to think with. So as long as I have a mind to think with, I can make a decision and it can be a bad one. And it doesn't necessarily come out of. But in the category that I'm thinking about when these decisions are unusual, abnormal, and they don't make sense to anyone, like why would somebody behave in that manner? then the first place you ought to look is not in the bad decision. It ought to be look, the first question you ask is ought to be in, is, in, is in the identity. Because I want to make sure that if I want to tell somebody, "No, this is you know this is an adjustment that you need to make. You're thinking wrong about this. I want to be able to tell them, "No, this is the result of something you're thinking. I don't mind telling people that. I mean, if, if God shows me that that's the case, that, you, that what you're thinking is wrong, then you, you, you need to think differently and make a different decision. But I'm always mindful first before I say anything like that about the possibility of a false identity that that person's carrying. Because I'm sure not going to criticize them for a decision when, the, when, it, when it's coming from something that's so broken within them. Other comments? I can't find it or remember the whole thing, but one time you said um, you, you heard it from the Lord. If you could see my something, you'd understand my heart. Oh, man, that's a long time ago. Uh, yeah, I think what I said... If, if you see my design, if you could see my design, you'd understand my heart. Because what I was referring to was were things like, if you understand that, that when, when I teach about this sin being dead, he killed it so that we could walk in this newness of life. Now, if I can see what he designed there, then I'll understand the heart of a father who not only said, you know, if, if Ethan came running out of his room and said, Mom, there's a rattlesnake in my room. Then any loving parent, any responsible adult would go in and kill that which would kill him. So for to understand the heart of the father that... The reason he so destroyed the sin that would separate us from him, according to Romans chapter 6, the reason he killed that sin, because that was the sin that could destroy us. But if you went into Ethan's room and you killed the snake, but you looked up and there's no bed in the room, and there's no there's no furniture in the room, there's no carpet on the floor, there's no heat, there's no cooling. It's just an empty room. Did you kill the snake and make him safe? Yes. But that's not the heart of a father. The heart of the father says, now that I've killed the snake, I want to fill this room with the best I can put in here. I want you to live in the fullness of all that I can give you. If I can see that what he designed from the, from the redemption that he paid for to kill the snake and the regeneration that he, came, that, he, that he paid for when he came out of the tomb, new life that he could give us. If I understand that design, I'll understand his heart. I'll know then, he'll know, when, when, when the writer of Hebrews says that he, he chastens or chastises those whom he loves, I will absolutely know I will never be punished for that which he's already killed. For the sin that I, that I keep thinking I'm doing over and over and over, he just keeps punishing me for that old sin. No. What he's doing... He's reminding me in that discipline that I'm not walking in his best. That's a different heart from the Father that we can actually see if we understand how he designed it. To understand that he designed us so that, that he could save us, clean the vessel, the design was not so that we could then go get busy. The design was that we would recognize by the cleaning of the vessel, I'm now qualified to be filled with his presence. That's design work. That, re- that reflects the heart of a father. I think that's what I said. Yeah. So he's, he, he, all he's doing is, he's lay, in, the, in, that, in those two verses, he's laying that design out, those blueprints out on the table so that we can look at them. See, I've designed it so that you don't have to be good. I've designed it so that I'll be good through you. That's design. shows us his heart. Because it would be terrible, laborious for us all to try to be good. And we're not very good at it, so the world doesn't like it. Because we keep peddling our version of good. What do you think about perfection? Like in terms of perfection? Mm hmm. Yeah, it's something that can be measured. Incomplete. and Incomplete, and yeah. All right. Father, thank you tonight for teaching us and just reminding us of these beautiful and profound, unusual, amazing things. Father, you just show us, you just turn that spotlight on, that sunshine hits these scriptures. And Father, they just explode in front of us and we thank you for that. We thank you for the heart behind these verses, behind these words. For Jesus to say what he said and not in any manner of downplaying who he was or disrespect to you but acknowledging fully that for him, even him, to do what he did each day required this connection with you so that you could flow through him. What a profound design that shows us this tender heart of a father that says I don't want it to be up to you, I want it to be up to me. Thank you for showing us that again such a profound way. Just pray tonight, Father, for Hannah and all that's happening in this moment. Pray, Father, specifically for healing already given, now being walked in. Father, just thank you that you, can, that you have placed in Danny and Amy this amazing hope, this confidence in you, this trust in you in, the, in these moments. So thank you, Father, for their testimony, for their word, for their assurance, Thank you for their presence there with Hannah and with Seth and just for, for being in this moment because we know, Father, that it brings your spirit so powerfully into this moment on their behalf. Thank you for that. We pray for Diane tonight. For, the, for two weeks in the hospital, Father, we, just, we know that there's a lot going on there. We don't know exactly what it is. The doctors may not know, but you know. And we pray, Father, that you would just make that very evident and do it quickly, Father. Just bring healing quickly. This, this daughter is important. She, she matters so much in the life of this story. And we just pray for her, Father, this healing and the health that is desired by her, by her family and those around her. So we speak that over her tonight and, and, and just in your, in your will on earth as it is in heaven. We speak that into Diane's story. We pray for Donna's brother, just knowing, Father, that there are so many things going on there. So much. But Father, I just pray in this moment as you release me to pray it, that there would be like you, the picture I get in my head, Father, is a mist coming in at the floor level, almost undetected, just barely seen or felt but becomes thicker and heavier and begins to rise, not obtrusive, not hateful and not hurtful, that everyone around him, everyone who's tending to him, would move in this mist. For every sharp or hurtful thing, it will be met by a a soft and tender thing. Thank you, Father. Father. That you can so penetrate this moment in his life tonight. That all he's experiencing is your presence with him to entering the room, covering every moment, every square inch, everything touched by you, and let peace rise in the room. Your presence, your love, your goodness, your kindness. Let it penetrate every heart as they touch, heal, help, speak. Let your presence be offered in gentleness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.